Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Rebecca. And this is Full Plate, Full Cup. We're startup leaders turned executive coaches who believe that you deserve to be wildly successful and wildly happy. We interview trailblazing entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives so you can peek behind the curtain of how they got where they are today and start carving your own path towards success. Each episode shares personal stories as well as actionable takeaways that you can apply to begin living a more joyful and fulfilling life. Join us to learn how to scale your business, harness your power, and fill your cup. If you like what you hear, subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of the Full Plate, Full Cup podcast. We are so excited to have Sarah Kubrick, or Dr. Sarah Kubrick, right? You just became a doctor. Let's call it like it is. Thank Um, you. Of course, congratulations on the show today. So Sarah, I'm going to read your bio and then we will dive right in. So Dr. Sarah Kubrick, known to her 1.5 million Instagram followers as at Millennial Therapist, is an existential therapist who specializes in identity, relationships, and moral trauma. Born in Yugoslavia and raised in Canada, she describes herself as a, quote, digital nomad who is compelled by humanity in all its various contexts. Sarah is passionate about helping people and seeing change, whether she's working in her private online clinic, writing content, consulting, or conducting research. Sarah is also the author of It's On Me, a guide to identifying self-loss that helps readers figure out two existential questions, who am I and why am I here? She has been featured in numerous media outlets, including Oprah Daily, Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan, Connie Nast Travel, Women's Health, and the Guardian. Sarah, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm quite the intro. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> you've done it. You've done a lot. We had to get it all in there. You're so sweet. I'm so happy to be here. I'm like stoked for this conversation. And it's really funny because we met in Times Square at like 7 a.m. on a freezing morning when we were waiting for a mutual friend to go on Good Morning America to promote her book. Vienna Farron. And you kind of looked at me and you're like, you don't look like you would normally be here at 7 a.m. on a Wednesday. At 7 a.m. I love so, that. Right? It, it, it's what just a random way to meet. What a random way to meet. And now you're on our podcast. So I'm sure many people out there listening know you by your Instagram handle, the millennial therapist, which has a catchy, lighthearted ring to it. But your interest in psychotherapies really emerged from a much darker, more challenging place, right? Like we often do the work that we either need or at one point needed to receive the most. So can you tell us a little bit about your early childhood and immigrating from Yugoslavia to Canada, where I believe you're recording from today? Exactly. Full Go circle. Figure. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting that when you see, we always say social media is not real life, but that's just so true. And even if you see a therapist or an expert talking to you about something, it's so easy to assume that their life is easy or has always been easy. And I remember when I first started the account, there were so many people that were like, what do you know about, what do you know? You know, and it was just very much like, you live in Canada and you know, and it was just so many assumptions thrown my thrown my way. And of course, I'm incredibly privileged and aware of my privilege. 
And I think I have a background that a lot of people don't know about and would be really surprised to hear about. And (laughs) part of that is the fact that, you know, I was born in Bosnia right before the genocide started there. And then my family had to deal with that. And then we moved to Serbia and then the Kosovo war started. Um, And then uh, those are some very clear childhood memories for me. It's things that it's probably the number one thing I remember from my childhood. Um, And that was a very incredibly traumatizing time. Um, And so then when I was nine, the war ended, we immigrated to Canada And then immigration itself can be quite traumatizing in terms of not speaking the language, not having the finances, trying to navigate a completely different culture. And so I feel like there was a lot packed in there in the first like 10 years of my life. (laughs) Can you recall like a specific moment or story when you decided to become a therapist and would love to know if the path to becoming a therapist was fairly straightforward or if it was more like a windy road that kind of one day here you were. Yeah, and that's such a great question. I honestly can't even remember the time I chose to go in psych because I just always like I remember as a kid wanting to be like a news anchor. I thought that would be really fun. <laughs> you know, and like I had these random aspirations, but Ever since, I don't know, middle school or high school, I don't actually recall wanting to be anything. I also don't recall having a moment where I was like, I'm going into psych. I just, it just kind of happened. And I think because I was so curious about humanity really early on, I saw not the best sides of humanity. I saw, you know, a decent amount of suffering. And of course, this is not like, oh, wow, it's me. Like, honestly, I understand that even my circumstance is so much better than so many people and what they've had to go through. But I think it kind of steals your childhood a little bit and makes you very curious in terms of like, what makes people want to harm other people? For me, it was inconceivable. Like, why would someone who doesn't know me, like, for example, bomb us? Or why would someone want to hurt me and my family? It just made no sense to me. And so I think um, I became really, really curious about human behavior. And it wasn't I didn't go into psych initially to be like, I'm going to heal people. I think it was like, I need to understand. And then that turned into, and then I want to be part of the healing journey for someone. So it was kind of a gradual thing, but I always, you know, wanted to go in psych. I had a a moment where I was like, maybe neuroscience or something. And then I was like, that's just not as fun. (laughs) And then I was like, maybe not. (laughs) Well, we're so glad that you uh, decided on the path that you did and like over a million people out there are very glad that you decided to not sit in a lab. No, Thanks. no offense to neurofest science. Yeah. It's a fabulous, mm-hmm. fabulous thing to go after. Um, but you refer to yourself as an existential therapist. And I think many people have heard the phrase existential questions, right? They're like the big questions that we have about life. But uh, I have actually never heard the term existential therapist. So I'd love for you to break down sort of what that means, how that applies to the way that you work with people in, in practice. Yeah, it's such a great question. I do think it's like that vague term. <laughs> I feel like I kind of get it, but I don't get it. Um, I think when you think about uh, therapeutic modalities, it's good to understand it's like a lens through which you see a problem. So if you're an attachment therapist, focus therapist, you will understand your client's issues from an attachment theory. So you'll go, okay, I think this attachment is playing out. And, you know, and then that's how you're going to journey with them. It's how you're going to maybe give them different activities and homeworks and 
prompts and whatever it is. Existential therapy is just one of those lenses. So it's me understanding the client's suffering through essentially lens of existentialism, which is a philosophy. And what that means is I'm really attuned to, um, you know, key like cornerstones of responsibility, freedom, death, meaning, isolation. So these are the things that perk up my ears and I go, okay, I'm trying to understand this. Like, one approach can be, are you lacking meaning? Where's the value in what you're doing? And so that would be my approach. So it's just like a lens, a filter, because if you try to understand someone, you need, you need kind of a blueprint. Otherwise there's just so much. (laughs) And oftentimes most therapists will come to the same conclusion, even from different modalities, but it's just kind of a structure that leads you to working with your client, understanding your client and understanding their suffering. Yeah, that actually, it makes a lot of sense to me from the lens of literature and reading. I was a literature major in college. And, you know, when I, when I hear you talk about meaning and loss, and it's like the sort of the Joseph Campbell's hero's journey sort of lens of seeing humanity and, and the life cycle, right? Those big moments, those big, um, those big questions, um, that is that is so fascinating, and I'm I'm glad that you shared that because that was a new, <laughs> a new a new term for me. So, you know, there's so much more to you and what you do than having a big following. But, you know, for people listening, like the thought of like wa- starting a feed, right, and then watching it grow and grow and grow and grow. What was that like for you as, you know, I would assume, you know, there's people who are like celebrities or, you know, singers, pop stars, whatever. And so like fame and their social media, it's like part and parcel of their life. But for someone who does something that's, you know, a quote unquote normal job, you are a therapist and you write content, right? What was that like watching that number just grow and grow and grow? Yeah. Surreal. (laughs) I don't think my intention was ever to become a quote unquote insta therapist or insta famous or however people phrase it. It just, you know, when you're in grad school, the concept of even being on social was questionable. Like now that's blown out of the water, but it was like, do you share content? Is that like, I think psychology was really safeguarded before it was like a a little secret club. And part of the reason for that was not because we didn't want to make it accessible, but because we were too scared to make it accessible. There were so many like things you had to consider until social media came about and was like, you have an opportunity to advocate for the things that you care about outside of the one-on-one session. And that I thought was really, really cool. And so my thought, I always say like, I gave myself six months. I was traveling the world at the time. And I was like, I have no idea how I'm going to have a community or an advocacy space. I also had no idea how I was going to get clients. (laughs) All my friends were like starting in practices, getting referrals and the people in the city. And I was like, oh my God, I have to move back to Canada. Like I need to just like open up a private practice, live this traditional life that made my skin want to crawl. Like my skin was crawling. I was just like, I don't actually want this life for me now, especially because I graduated fairly early. It just felt like I did not want that lifestyle. And so I started Insta, gave myself six months. It's a really long answer. And was like, if it succeeds, And by succeeds, I was like, if I get 2000 followers or something or 5000 followers by end of the year, that was my goal. 5000 end of the year, which I was so embarrassed to tell people about because I was like, there's no way this is going to happen. It's so embarrassing. But I wrote it down in my journal. I was like 5000 followers. That's it. That's all I want. 
And of course, it was like my mom, my boyfriend, like people liking it. <laughs> it's really embarrassing because you have to like pretend that you have this big platform. Like we're to, like, in that stage right now, though. It's how yeah, everyone like, gets started it. for sure. It's like you have to pretend that you have a big audience in terms of how you present yourself, but you're very aware that like five people are looking at it. Like at least it was literally for me. And like a couple months in, like, it was just like, I was like, what is happening? Like, I was like, okay, I guess I'll try figuring out your voice. And by the end of the first year, I had 200,000 followers, but I was super shocked. And I remember when I hit 5,000, I went, I don't think I can post anymore. I have so much anxiety thinking that 5,000 people are going to be influenced Mm. by my content. That is an insane amount of responsibility. Like we use these numbers and these metrics as if it's nothing, but imagine standing in front of 5,000 people and then being like, oh my God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try this, or I care about this, or this made me think of something like the responsibility at the start weighed so heavy on me that it was almost a breaking point where I was like, I'm not really sure that this is what I should be doing. And then I think with time, you block it out, not the responsibility piece, but just the vastness of it and just stick to like, I'm responsible for what I put out and I can stand by behind my content. And so, yeah, there was a moment where I completely freaked out. Yeah. I can imagine, you know, as somebody who specializes in and focuses on mental health, just the sheer volume of connection and people messaging, right. And thinking they know you and the nice comments, the mean comments. I imagine you must have some pretty firm boundaries or like, you know, kind of ways that you uh, allow yourself to exist in that digital space without it becoming right. Something that sort of uh, affects you when you're not in the digital digital space. So I'd love to hear, because I do think, you know, you, you, you make a very great point is that this sort of uh, social media pressure, anxiety, whatever, it doesn't start when you're like at 200,000, right? It's like people that have a few thousand followers might already be feeling this way. So I'm curious, what are the boundaries that you keep for yourself? And, and what do you recommend for your clients that are starting to feel like, oh, I want to use this as a tool for my business, but I'm it's starting to affect my mental health? Oh, it's a relationship, <laughs> right? Look at it as an actual relationship that has ebbs and flows and that the boundaries need to be adjusted. Like I think I had to learn to grow with it. There wasn't like a set boundary and now I'm just going to have that same boundary because that just would be out of context. And so at first, you know, there's moments in my journey with Instagram where I felt like too much and it was impacting my mental health or there would be dips in algorithms as Insta was exploring different things. And you take that really personally. (laughs) Right. And like, as much as you would like to be like, oh, it's just social media. I'm talking to other therapists and they're like, no, no, you take it personally. You're like, what am I doing wrong? Am I not connecting with people anymore? Is my Instagram career over? Like, it's just so hard. And so I think something I tried to do was take it less personally and also just have a very enriching life outside of social media. I think a lot of us end up spending personally or professionally a lot of time on there and we confuse it for real life. And so I think I'm also getting to a spot in my career where I'm just kind of 
saturated with it. So I don't enjoy being on it anymore, which is like a saving grace where I think I'm kind (laughs) of like, like not over. Like I love the engagement. I love being on it for like an hour or two, but in my free time, I'm not grabbing my phone to go on a social Mm. media app because I'm just tapped out. You're free. Um, (laughs) I'm free. And so I think it depends on like, and there were times when that just wasn't true. And so I had to have stricter boundaries when that wasn't true for me. And now that boundary just flows a bit more authentically. Yeah. It's so smart the way that you're thinking about it though, as a relationship, right. And it it changes and it ebbs and it flows and, and to kind of like accept that. So your first book, it's on me. (laughs) So by the time this episode airs, your book will have literally just been released. I think we might be releasing this episode on the same day that your book comes into the world. I mean, talk about that timing. So, you know, your book is about self-loss and those words ring true for me. I'm sure they ring true for so many listeners. We've all experienced some sense of loss of ourselves at some point in our life, I'm sure. Um, But what does self-loss mean to you? Because I I would assume it means something different for an uneducated me and our listeners than it does for you. So I'm going to go straight to the source here. No, I love it. Um, I think the the simplest way to explain it is not knowing who you are and not acting like who you are. Because I think the self is not a static experience. It's it's very you're you are yourself through your actions and you're not yourself through your actions. So it's not like you wake up one day and you're like, now I'm just not myself. It's like there, there is a plethora of experiences that have led to that moment, even if you're not quite aware of it. So it's that discomfort, that loneliness, that emptiness, that feeling of brokenness or disconnection, lack of alliance, congruence that you feel and you're not always 100% sure where it comes from. And you feel like you're functioning just fine, but something oftentimes is missing and it manifests in the most mundane ways like you'll have a hard time following through with your boundaries your relationships always play out the same way um you are doing something that's quote-unquote meaningful but you don't find meaning in it it can show up in ways just because none of those actions are maybe wrong like maybe the relationship's not wrong maybe the boundary in itself is a perfectly fine boundary but if these things don't actually align it's a it's such an incongruent lost feeling that if you sit with that for a prolonged amount of time, you will not know who you are or what to do. That's how it was for me. <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that definition. I mean, if someone is experiencing any of those s- symptoms that you just mentioned, and we teach a lot about burnout, I imagine that burnout is also a symptom where where do you suggest they start in kind of recovering that sense of self? I think just being more curious. I am trying to really draw back. It's like observation. You can learn so much about who you are if you just paid attention. Right? Like so, so much. And even paying attention to like, I don't know if you've ever gone on a date, sent a text, yelled at your mother and then be like, oh, that was, that just does not feel aligned with me. 
all of the above. All of the above, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like paying attention to your action and paying attention to how you feel after your actions. It's like, does this represent how I understand myself to be? And if not, you're confusing the heck out of yourself. And not just that, you're confusing the heck out of people around you because who, like, let's say you're dating and you really have a weak sense of self. Who is this person dating? Like, that's an interesting question. Like, who are they connecting with? And that can make it really difficult for others, obviously, as well as yourself, because you don't feel seen, you don't feel heard. And it's hard for the other person to do those things um, if you're if you lack congruency. One of the quotes that you recently shared from the book is about quotes. And I'm going to read it. I quote, uh, there are a lot of quotes out there about trusting that you are exactly where and who you need to be. And although they feel good to read, they often don't actually represent our reality. Maybe you are not where or who you want to be. So that's the quote. And as coaches, we love this because we are obviously in the business of helping people get to where they want to be. So I'd love to hear from your perspective. How does someone balance the the very important need for self-love, self-acceptance with also honestly assessing their progress, where they are in their life, what they want, what they want to achieve, or that maybe they're just like not, uh, not doing what they need to do in this moment. How do you balance those two things? I'm so glad you like that quote. Yeah. I really like that quote. Yeah. Too. <laughs> it's like, keep it real, please. Cause yeah. there's so much fluff out there. It's so much fluff. You know, I appreciate the positive reframe of things. I appreciate the encouragement what I don't appreciate is the lack of responsibility that's being infused in some of the toxic positivity. If you are in a situation you do not need to be in, maybe get out of that situation. Like, And it doesn't have to be like super serious or life-threatening, but it's like you just need to understand that maybe where you are is not the universe's manifestation of your higher self. Maybe it's a poor decision. <laughs> Or maybe it's not even a poor decision. Maybe it's a decision that aligned before and no longer does. And I think it's just so important to to open that as a possibility. And actually, so many people felt relieved after that quote. It was interesting the amount of DMs I got because they said, if you believe you're everywhere you need to be, then you feel so horrible for not being grateful or for wanting a change. So people are feeling trapped within this concept of like, I'm exactly where I need to be. And I... I mean, if you are, yes, and you're one of the lucky ones and hold on to that feeling, that's great. That's what we all want. Um, And I know how good that feeling is because I actually feel that way in my life right now. And yet there's so many times when I didn't. And if someone told me you're exactly where you need to be, that's such a powerless situation to find yourself in. And it doesn't motivate you. So that's my rant on the actual quote. How do you balance it? I think is really difficult. I think it's really important to understand that you need acceptance before change because you need to receive and understand and own where you're at. And unless you accept where you're at, you won't know how to change. And there is no change that comes without acceptance of the situation. And so I think like that acceptance piece is actually quite uh, aligned with change or not no change, but it's kind of the ground zero for both. <laughs> um, self-love is fantastic. And I think, you know, we should 
we should, we should strive for it. But there are so many steps before that. Like you need to know yourself. You need to respect yourself. You need to like yourself. And then one day, hopefully you'll get to love. But again, think of it as a relationship with someone else being like, you need to love this person. You're like, dude, I, I don't know. They're like, I don't know the basic things about them. And sometimes we don't know the basic things about us. We don't know our preferences. We are not sure about our values. It's like, give it time. Stop forcing the self-love that will come that will evolve that will be amazing once it happens but don't skip the steps of any healthy relationship like all of that is needed to get to it so it's like accept and then build and I don't think like progress in terms of like goals I see it in terms of taking all the freedom and responsibility you have in shaping a life that you want and being the person that you want. That's it. It's that fluid and it's that consistent. And, you know, if hard things and being honest with yourself is hard, it's tripping you up. My encouragement is to become a lover of truth. Like truth will set you free, like change your relationship with truth Mm. and all the rest I think will follow much easier. Yeah, that is music to our ears. So um, with, without plugging ourselves, we have a course on burnout, healing burnout, and it literally has four love. phases. Know yourself, yeah, honor yourself, then love yourself. Yes. And then the last one is commit to yourself when we kind of teach all the tools. But that's just, it's so aligned with us because the the just jumping right into love, it's like, well, maybe I don't love the fact that I have like all of these like, you know, messy habits or tendencies that I, that I know that I want to clean up or I'm not even aware of. Right. So it's getting that awareness, getting that awareness, getting that clarity, getting that self-respect. And then it's like, Ooh, now I can honestly love myself. Not just like hashtag love myself. (laughs) I don't even know what that means at this point. You know, like self-love, if love is a verb, it would, it would, you would see love in your actions. And like, I just, I just think we're putting too much pressure and unrealistic yeah. expectations. And yes, you should love, but I would settle for someone respecting themselves. Yeah. You know totally. what I mean? Like if that's totally. where you're starting, amazing. Totally. So in a previous uh, interview, you said that you hope that your book helps people stop sleepwalking through life, which mm. ooh, we love that. Uh, we refer to that in our coaching practice as being on autopilot. Yeah. So if someone is listening and thinking, oh shit, like I feel like I'm sleepwalking through life or I'm on autopilot, right? I'm like doing this job. I'm in this relationship. I'm with these friends or whatever it is. What are some actionable steps or even just like a first step that they can take to wake up and start moving through life with more intentionality? Read my book. No, just kidding. Perfect. No, I'm like plugging just, no, I mean, I I do hope that actually my, my book goes through it in depth. And that's why it took a book to answer that. It's really hard for me to narrow it down because everything seems to reduce, to be accurate. But I think, you know, if you, if you think about finding ways to connect or at least check in, I would say if I had to reduce it to like the bare minimum is like on autopilot, it means there's no intentionality. And then there's no feedback. There's no inner dialogue introduce one of those things of like, okay, I had a day. How did that day make me feel? What is my body telling me about this day? What was a thought that was persistent throughout my day? And so it's just really 
being interested in who you are and it's being interested in your experience of the day of the world of yourself and so just a little curiosity curiosity a little journaling that was the weirdest way to say curiosity <laughs> i don't know what happened it's happened. Um, i love it it's just it can go a long way i don't think that that's like check-ins are the ultimate solution and i think there's a really big answer again, why I wrote the book. But if you wanted to start something, it's like check in. And sometimes I tell people to check in midday. Because at the end of the day, you're kind of tired or things are not actually happening. You're not engaging with the world as much. It's like set an alarm at noon. I don't care what you're doing. You're like, okay, what is my body feeling? What is the emotion popping up? What is the thought I'm having? Just like pop in. So we need people to check in and we need people to buy It's On Me. I mean, obviously one, two, (laughs) step one and two, and you'll be good to go. No more sleepwalking. Perfect. So so Sarah, you describe yourself as a nomad and, you know, desiring that nomadic lifestyle you shared earlier, it's kind of like part of what led you to where you are today, because you didn't want to settle down and start a physical therapy practice like some of your friends and colleagues were doing. So, you know, what inspired you outside of like, I don't want to have a physical therapy practice to live that, that sort mean, of nomadic life. <laughs> well, you know, you know. Okay. But what but what inspired you to live that nomadic lifestyle rather than putting down roots? So let's just explain the causality real quick. I didn't want the private practice because it meant I was stationary. It's not that I didn't want to be stationary because like of the private practice. Like I the prior practice just meant everything else had to come to a halt that I wanted to do. And so my desire for travel, I think, has so many facets to it. One, I think when I first started doing it, which you'll read in the book, it was part of escapism. Like I needed space and I felt like I could not be, I could not exist in my context And I was just, I felt like I was dying. I felt like I was drowning. I was having panic attacks. I did not function. Like there was no, I couldn't leave my room. Like that was the level of lack of functioning for months on end. And so I needed space from people, context, and triggers in order to figure myself out. And not everyone can do that. And I did that. And that's how it started. Now, obviously, with my background of already kind of being nomadic as a child, I think as I traveled, I got so much appreciation about variety of perspectives and cultures and people. And I realized that when I was in contexts that were quite inconsistent, the one consistent thing was me. And it was a really cool way to see who I was in a variety of contexts. Like sometimes you'll see a friend who like when you meet them one-on-one coffee, they're a certain person. Then you see them at a party and you're like, who are you? And then you see them with like a guy and you're like, what? Like, it's just completely different versions. And I think this was kind of on a massive scale of that of like, okay, being a woman in a certain culture. Okay. Being not speaking the language. Okay. Not having the routine. And it kind of became a really cool way to learn about the world and myself. 
And then I think just some people like to travel. So I'm definitely one of those people. <laughs> I mean, like sometimes it's not that deep. Um, and I love the connections I'm making. And I think slowly I'm slowing down in terms of like, now I'm like, oh, it'd be so nice. Like, you know, I'm based in Australia and I still want to, you know, do months stints for work, maybe New York, somewhere in Europe. But I do feel like I'm slowly coming to a space where that no longer feels as authentic as it used to in terms of I'm getting old, the jet lag is serious. And I just like my body is like dying on airplanes so you know there's maybe it's just a phase where I'm like you know slowing down a little bit not living actively out of a suitcase for years on end would be and is becoming a little more enticing so I think it's just again I don't like to label in terms of like this is what I'll do forever and traveling is not a personality like it's it's like you know I I like it I enjoyed it served a purpose I'll keep doing it but like I, um, I am open, always open to kind of readjusting my lifestyle if need be. What you just said that I want to point out is in addition to, you know, it sounds like your travels helped you to get to know yourself when you really needed to get to know yourself. But I also appreciate that you said, it's just something I enjoy. Like it's just fun. Right. And I think that some people can be scared to even like speak out loud. Like I'm making this choice for myself because it just feels to. fun because it makes me happy yeah. because this is what I want, right? And so I I appreciate you saying that and in that maybe giving someone who's out there listening permission to do the same. So, you know, speaking of having some fun, having a book come out in the world is a huge accomplishment. Amanda and I, and I'm sure you, you as well, and now you've experienced it, have watched friends launch books. And it's like, oh my God. God, do you need a nap? Are you okay? Um, It's so much work. So will you give yourself any downtime once your book is out in the world, if you're going on tour, once that is over? And if so, what does that kind of like rest and recuperation and self-care look like for you? Yeah, I kind of did it backwards. And I think part of that was a tinge of burnout where the book was coming to an end and my I defended my dissertation. And this was like beginning of June. And then I, my mind just kind of <laughs> was like, bye, <laughs> see you later. And I actually feel like I've taken now almost two months to, so what does rest look like for me? The bare minimum. Like vacations are unrealistic if you work for yourself, like full vacations. And maybe, you know, you can do it for like a week. And I did. I spent a week celebrating my sister in Paris and I took a week off and we like had a birthday and it was great. A week counts. Yeah, a week counts. A week counts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's nothing to scoff at. But what I mean is like, I don't think it's enough to get you out of a burnout is what True. I mean. Yeah. Yep. So I had the best vacation. It was, a. I mean, you know, I still did a bit of work here and there, but I had like a vacation and then the rest of the two months, I was like, what is the bare minimum that I can do? And I am not this person. I detest this mindset. I just cannot. But I realized like I need to respect my boundaries and I need to rest now before the book launch. So I actually like, I took it easy. I was more in nature. I did the bare minimum and I did things that genuinely I enjoyed. And I think sometimes you're like, okay, I'll rest, but I'll read a self-help book. And it's like, no, no, do something you enjoy. Reading a self-help book might not actually be enjoyable for you. You might do it because you need to, and it's helpful, but it's like, do things that actually just relax you. And so I am feeling super energized. Like I'm so ready to go. And so I don't suspect I'll be taking a huge break after my book. I think I'll let the momentum take me. (laughs) 
I love that so much because I think for people who listening who are more motivated, type A, et cetera, you've given a really good um, kind of context or example of like when your body's speaking to, when the burnout is coming on, what can you do that also respects like your natural inclinations? Because like, if you're like, you're going from type A to like, I'm just going to go on this sabbatical. No, you're not. No, you're, <laughs> you're not. Exactly. You're going to go have a mental health breakdown because yes. you're not, you're going, you're shifting from like, what, I don't know anything about cars with gears, but you're shifting yeah. from like a high gear to zero gear and that doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like, it's not in my personality also to do nothing. So yeah. like I, I understood that the rest still came with like managing emails and like doing, you know, seeing clients, which I love. They actually brought me joy, cut down mm-hmm. other things. Like, but it was like, I still need to feel like me and working is a big part of what gives me meaning and fulfillment. And so it's like, how do I just tone it down, yep. reprioritize and take it easy? I love that so much. Well, we could talk to you all day, especially about this topic, but we obviously have to wrap things up eventually. So we ask a couple of rapid fire questions at the end of every episode. Don't worry. They don't have to be that rapid. Um, Helpful tips for our listeners who are figuring out how to make their way in this world. Um, So the first question is, what is one tip for working smart? Do something you find meaningful. Love that. I mean, work is hard. <laughs> and, you know, like work is hard. Like some jobs, sure, are definitely more more difficult than others. But I think if you find meaning and purpose and value in what you do, and it doesn't have to be like you're a doctor saving children, like you can, you know, maybe you really love working in the restaurant industry and seeing smiles on people's faces as they eat the food you prepared. Like it doesn't matter what the spectrum is, but it's like, it doesn't have to be that st- stereotypical help value sort of thing. Um, but just find something that brings you value because that's going to help you maintain a lot more energy. Like you're going to retain, retain is the word, retain a lot more energy because you're getting fueled back. And then it's going to make you be a little more smarter and you're going to be able to do things based on on your intuition and your values. And I think that that's helpful. What is one tip for working happy? Maybe that was the tip for working. (laughs) (laughs) Smart and happy. Do you want to give a second tip for working happy? I'm sure you have so many amazing. Smart and happy work together for me. Double down on finding meaning in your work. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And Sarah, where can our listeners find you and find your book, It's On Me? So the platform I'm most active on is probably Instagram. So that's millennial.therapist. I'm also on threads now. So that's been really fun. Um, Yeah, but you can, you know, find my name and find me in all social platforms. Um, And Substack. I love Substack. I'm just going to pitch that for a second because it's free content on a weekly basis. It's a bit more in depth. And I love the existential lens. So if that's something you're interested in, that's kind of where that content comes in. And that's on Substack under Sarah Kubrick. And then my book, I think you can find it where you find books. <laughs> so, but, you know, if always in doubt, there is uh, Barnes and Nobles and Amazon. And if you just go on Penguin Random House website, you'll be able to see all the choices. Well, Sarah, we so appreciate you coming on to the podcast today and sharing your background, your wisdom, your joy. You said the word joy so many times, which makes us happy and it's contagious. And um, I imagine that anyone who is lucky enough to read your book will experience some of that joy for themselves. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Full Plate, Full Cup. If you found this episode helpful, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. To learn more about the Full Plate, Full Cup methodology or to work with us in a more personal way, find us on Instagram at Full Plate, Full Cup. That's at F-U-L-L-P-L-A-T-E-F-U-L-L-C-U-P or online at www.fullplatefullcup.com www.fullplatefullcup.com